Good morning, everybody. Can I just say it's really nice to see such a full church on a holiday weekend. (laughs) The uh, difference being, I guess, is it's freezing cold outside. (laughs) Enjoy your three-day weekend. Um, We want to invite our children to uh, Children's Church. If you just want to meet the teacher in the back there. And as they're going, let me open us in a word of prayer. Gracious Lord, we sang about your worth, about... Uh, Lord, how you are worthy to open the scroll. Uh, how, Lord, you are worthy to unfold history. Um, and none other is worthy aside from you. And uh, Lord, we're just amazed to think that we rest securely in your hands, the, the one who has history in those same hands. And thank you for that, Lord. Thank you for the hope that we have in you. And Lord, now as we turn to your word, we ask that you would be with us Lord, help us to, uh, to see and to understand. Open our hearts and minds to grasp what it is that you're saying to your church today. And Lord, we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. So last week was um, kind of the riot, the charges against Paul in the form of a riot. And now this week, chapter 24, this is where we get to the formal charges and we're before an actual authority, not just a mob who's, who's thrown a fit. Uh, so the, what we're going to see is, is the charges that are levied against Paul, Paul's answer to them, but then it ends with the result of this, which is not what you would hope it would be. Um, and, and one of the things we're going to learn about is who this Felix guy was. Remember I mentioned him last week, a little bit of his history. What we're going to see today is going to kind of prove what, I, what we heard about him last time. So um, let's just dig in and, and start on it. Uh, it. It says that after five days, the high priest Annas came down with elders and a spokesman uh, named Tertullus. Now, the word for spokesman, uh, it has to do with one who speaks. So spokesman's probably not a bad way to use it. Um, it's used in different ways in different places. The King James translates it here an orator, so a, a public speaker. And really, that's what it's, what it's getting at. The, the, uh, the root behind it is the word for word. Uh, but when you give it the context, he's standing before a governor. He, he's not standing on the street corner giving oration. He's standing before a governor. So one of the ways that this word is used is one who is authorized to speak in court or a lawyer. Um, as a matter of fact, the NIV says, translates it as lawyer. The NAS translates it as an attorney. So this is not just some hack off the street who has a good speaking voice. This is a man who knows what he's doing. And we'll see that in what he does as he he appears before Felix, what he's got to say to him. So he begins with this really flattering speech. Um, Since uh, through you we enjoy much peace, and by your foresight, because you're so smart, most excellent Felix, Reforms are being made for this nation. Isn't that wonderful? Okay, the history behind this, it's not that nice. Um, One of the things that Felix did was uh, the the town of Caesarea was kind of a disputed city. Was it Jewish or was it uh, Roman? And there were fights back and forth. And so this group called the Zealots rose up and tried to take over the city. They tried to fight the Romans. And so what Felix did is had them all killed. So there's this huge dispute, and he's standing right in the middle of it. Remember last week I said some of the history said he's a violent man. He, he is. He's prone to violence. So when Felix comes and says, we enjoy much peace, it's just blatantly not true. They, they enjoy a lot of bloodshed from him um, so far. And uh, now when he calls him uh, most excellent Felix, that's not probably not flattering. It's probably just the term of respect for that office. Because remember who Luke wrote his books to? 
most excellent Theophilus. It's a term of respect. So he's respecting uh, Felix, but he's also trying to butter him up a little bit. Um, reforms are being made for this nation. What? There are reforms being made for this nation. The guy hasn't done anything. As a matter of fact, what we hear at the end of the chapter is he loses his job. And he loses his job because he's been such an ineffective leader. The text will prove that out. That comes from extra biblical stuff. So this is how Tertullus starts. Um, it was not uncommon to start a, a legal argument by um, addressing the judge in a flattering manner. I am so glad that we get to appear before you because you're such a great judge. I, I want to be judged by nobody but you. You're wonderful. Um, now, I think when it becomes a formality, if you don't do it, you look like a fool. <laughs> but doing it doesn't probably actually accomplish much. Uh, but this is how he starts because he's a professional lawyer. And so what he does is he brings charges against Paul. The first one is that he is a plague. That's the summary statement. This Paul, he has been pestilence. He has been, I think the NAS calls him a real pest. Um, that may be tying it down a little bit. It, it was a pestilence, a plague. He is bad news, this Paul. That's the general statement. And then here's what he goes through. He claims that he has stirred up riots everywhere he's gone, that he's a ringleader of this sect for the Nazarenes, and that he profaned the temple. He set out to profane the temple. So those are the three actual charges. And what shows that Tertullus knows what he's doing is these are three actionable charges against Roman law. And here's what I mean. First of all, he stirs up riots. Remember what we've talked about so many times in the book of Acts? You do not disturb the Pax Romana. You don't upset the, the peace of Rome. Because they know if these kind of things flare up, if these little riots in cities, pretty soon the whole, the whole nation is in trouble. And so Rome would very brutally cut down any kind of this stuff. So to accuse Paul of being the one who starts the riots is putting a crosshair right on his forehead. This is the troublemaker. This is the guy who's doing this stuff. And this was fairly common in the first century is these fake messiahs would rise up and say they were going to do wonderful things and lead a bunch of people after him. So that's the kind of category that Tertullus is putting him in is he stirs up riots. The next one is he's a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He's a ringleader, negative tone to it. Anybody ever be called a ringleader in a positive way? I don't think so. But he, it's, it's really careful the way the Tertullus says it. He's a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. Notice he doesn't mention any messianic hopes here. He doesn't call him Jesus the Christ or anything. He says he's this, the ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. Nazareth was under... Um, Felix's uh, reign of authority. So what Tertullus is doing by identifying the cult as coming from Nazareth, or, uh, Nazareth, he's putting him under his authority, saying, you have to deal with this. You're responsible for this guy. And that term sect, it, it actually is, um, it's not exactly heresy, but it's the word that kind of branched into that. Um, it, it's that kind of an idea. What he's saying by saying this is the ringleader of a cult or a sect of the Nazarenes is he's saying, okay, Rome has authorized religions. Judaism was given the status of an authorized religion. This Paul, this guy who's, who's disturbing the peace of Rome, he's also starting an unauthorized religion. He's a ringleader in an unauthorized religion, so he's going around spreading this. Rome hasn't authorized this. Felix, you got to do something about this guy. He's stirring up trouble. He's starting a new cult. And then in the last one, he even tried to profane the temple. 
Now, why would a Gentile care if he profaned the temple? Because Judaism was an authorized religion, right? The, the temple was given special protection. Remember the wall that we talked about? There was the wall of division, as Paul calls it, the, the, the uh, balustrade that went around and separated the court of the Gentiles from the court of the women. And remember the plaque that was on it and said, if you trespass this, your death is your own fault. Um, that was legally authorized by Rome. That was one of the few things that the Jews were allowed to take care of themselves legally was if a Gentile wandered into that part of the, t the temple, they had the authority to kill him. And it was on their own head. That's the kind of privileged position that the temple was given under Roman law. So when he says... He came in trying to profane the temple. What, he's, what Tertullus is saying is this guy is causing riots. He's part of an unauthorized religion, and he's disturbing the religion that is authorized. Felix, you have to do something about this guy. These are, these are weighty charges. And the way he ends it is he says, you can ask him yourself and prove these things are true. And then what happens is all the Jews stand there and go, yeah, he did that. Yep, that's, that's him. Uh-huh. The whole crowd is like a Greek chorus, only they're not Greeks, they're Jews. The Jewish chorus is standing there going, yep, that's right, that's what happened. So that's the charges that, that are leveled against him. Are they true? Not really. Um, we'll see that in a minute. If you were paying attention and you had your Bible open before you, you will notice that we go from verse 6 to verse 8. Are we missing a verse in our Bible? Did the, the people who, who numbered the verses miscount? What happened to verse 7? Um, Got to address it because it's not there um, in many translations. Here's what's going on. Verse 7, uh, there's a footnote in the NAS that says what verse 7 is supposed to have said. It said, and we wanted to judge him according to our law, but Lysias, the commander, came along and with much violence took him out of our hands. So that's the part that's not there. That's verse 7. Why isn't it in the ESV? Did they, you know, is this the most big glaring typo in the entire Bible? No, what's going on here is um, when it comes to the text of the New Testament, there's two big major traditions of groups of texts. Uh, one is called the Western text. It originates probably around 500 AD or so. Um, some of the texts may be older, but that's when the Western text was kind of combined. And in the Western text, it has this. It has that verse. So when the scribes decided to versify the Bible, there's your $8 seminary-educated word of the day, versify. That's when you put verses in. They included that in the text. The Western text had that verse, and so they, they numbered that verse. Um, the verses, by the way, are not inspired. The verse numbers are not inspired. The chapter numbers are not inspired. They're not part of the original text. So they numbered a verse that the Western text included. There's another tra textual tradition that came along called the Alexandrian text. And it's a much older group of manuscripts, dates from about the third century. So it's, it's much earlier. And generally, well, it, that verse is entirely missing from the Alexandrian text. It just isn't there. One of the characteristics of the Western text is um, they tend to embellish a bit. So when you're asking questions, this is, this is a course in textual criticism. When you're asking the question, should this verse be included or not, one of the questions to ask is, how old is it? The older texts tend to be more reliable. Not always, but they tend to be. So right off the bat, you should lean kind of towards the older text to begin with. 
The second criteria that's often asked is, which reading is more difficult? Because the idea is, if a scribe is, is, translator, is copying the Bible, they might get to a point and go, that's a little clumsy. Let me, let me add this little footnote in the side or you know, write it on the edge, and then the next thing you know, it creeps into the text. Um, in other words, it's, it makes more sense if people tried to smooth out difficulties rather than creating difficulties. So that's the assumption. So with that, almost all the translators look at this and say, the verse doesn't belong there. It, it shouldn't be part of the, the inspired text. Um, is that really a problem if we've got these difficulties? One, one of the things, there's, there's, there are critical scholars who say the Bible was heavily edited. Um, the, the texts of the New, Te New Testament have been really rewritten by scribes to, to prove that Jesus is God, and that there wasn't any original text and, and that kind of stuff. Um, so this is the kind of thing they would point at. You see, there's textual discrepancies here, and, and so obviously it's not reliable because it's been changed. From my point of view, when I look at this, I go, you know, there's a question here. First of all, does verse 7 add anything to the text? Does it explain or illustrate anything that's foreign to the text? Does it introduce a new concept? Again, this is what it said. We wanted to judge him according to our law, but Lysias, the commander, came along and with much violence took him out of our hands. Does it change any of this? It, it, it's fairly immaterial to the, to the question. The, so the first thing is, it's not like it says right in the middle, oh, by the way, Jesus is God. You know, they snuck this into the text. and It's nothing like that. It's a very subtle difference. It's, it's not huge. But we're talking about God's word, the Bible. So isn't this important? Shouldn't this matter? Absolutely, it should matter. And when we come across something like this, and we can take all of these texts from the ancient world, we can lay all of these texts out and begin to make this decision, what it tells me is we have a pretty good representation of what's going on in the Bible what was actually written, because we have numerous texts to compare it to. So the fact that we looked at verse 7 and said, you know what, it doesn't belong there. It looks like it was a later edition. It shows that we have this self-correcting nature to the text, that we can actually unpack some of this and go, yeah, this is fairly accurate translation. We've got tons of manuscripts that say this, and we've got some that don't. So we should, should we include it or not? It, it doesn't, for me, it doesn't diminish the authority of the Scripture. It increases my confidence that what we have is actually what the New Testament says. It's pretty darn close because we find these kind of things. So I just had to do that because somebody's going to say, what happened to verse 7? Um, the, the text, the word processor hiccuped at that point or something. So that's what's going on. That's the accusation against him. All the Jews agree. Paul is uh, causing riots. He's part of an unauthorized religion and he's disturbing an authorized religion. Get him, Felix. Sick him. He's a bad guy, and we need to deal with him. So now we get to hear Paul's reply. So the governor nods or motions or something to Paul. Go ahead, sir. Let's hear your reply. Paul starts with a less flattering, less syrupy kind of introduction, but still respectful, right? Knowing that for many years you have judged over this nation, I truly make my defense. It's still a respectful reply, but it's not, oh, great, Felix, you're so wonderful. Um, as I speak, let me massage your feet or something. I mean, it, it's a respectful term, but it is, let me get down to business here. And so here's what he says. Here's where he goes with this. It's been 12 days since I came up to worship in Jerusalem. Did I come up to Jerusalem to cause trouble, to start a riot, to, to do anything? Why did I come to Jerusalem? 
to worship. And it's only been 12 days, so you can go verify that. That's, that's the first demonstrable piece of evidence is I came to worship. You can verify this. And he says, and they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd either in the temple or in the synagogues of the city. So I came to Jerusalem. They're accusing me of starting riots. I came to Jerusalem, and what did I do? I quietly went into the temple to worship. I didn't go and stand on the street corners and cause problems. I didn't go in and disrupt synagogues or any of that. I came to worship. That's what, that's what I did. That's why I'm under arrest right now is because that's what I was doing. So that's how he's beginning to paint this picture. He says, neither can they prove what they now bring up against me. You notice what's missing from their, their testimony? Like any evidence, a witness, anything. All they've got is the people who are accusing him going, yeah, he did that. Yep, yep, that's right. So he's, he's asking Felix, go ahead and investigate this. Um, it, it just isn't true. It doesn't line up. It's not what's been going on. So that's what he's there for, is to worship, and these people bring up trouble, trouble for him. They can't prove any of this. And so now what he does is he begins to answer the charges, and the way he answers the charges is not one for one, but he's going to tell the story. He's going to give his narrative a bit, and, and we'll see where it intersects with, um, with some of the charges that have been leveled against you. He says, now, first of all, number one, I confess, good legal courtroom term, right? I confess that according to the way which they call a sect. So here's the first difficulty, is the Jews have come and they said this Nazarene thing is a sect. It is a breaking away. It is a branching off. It is a departure from, from Jewish, Jewish orthodoxy. It is not what we're supposed to be doing. He says they call it a sect. By saying that they do that, what he's implying is that is wrong. I do not consider this a sect. I don't consider this a sect in any way. According to the way which they call a sect, I worship God. So that's, that's what's going on. Now, the word sect, I mentioned already, it's kind of a branching off, a kind, of, kind of that kind of thing. Um, it's used to describe a bunch of different things in the New Testament. For example, they're called the sect of the Sadducees and the Pharisees. Um, the church is called a sect. Um, Paul uses it in his epistles, especially 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and, and Galatians 5, to talk about divisions within the church. So if we look at the New Testament use of the word sect, it can be positive or it can be, or it can be neutral or negative. In the church, we shouldn't have divisions. We shouldn't have sects within the church. We should be unified. But it's not necessarily negative when you talk about, well, this version of Judaism or that version of Judaism. So the question then is, is Christianity or the way, is it a sect? Is it a branching off or a division? Paul's going to work through that in his defense. He's going to unpack it for us. So he says, according to the way, which was one of the terms used for Christianity, according to Christianity, who do I worship? Do I worship a new deity? Do I worship a new God or some other God? I worship the God of our fathers. Christianity is not a new religion divorced from the Old Testament, worshiping two different gods. Christianity is looking at the Old Testament saying, that's the God I worship, the God that my fathers worshiped. And, and doesn't the rest of the New Testament just or authenticate that? Uh, I think of Hebrews chapter 11, going through all of these major characters in the Old Testament and going, they all hoped, they all looked forward, they were all waiting for. And the author of the Hebrews is calling them his own. They're calling him one of us. So Paul is saying, I worship the God of our fathers according to the way. So the way is something that's new. 
But the worship of God is not something that's new. He, he nails it down for us even further. The next thing he says is, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets. So when I say that I'm worshiping according to this way, is it antithetical to what's gone before? Is it some weird new way of doing something? No, it is solidly, firmly rooted in the law and the prophets. This, is Paul's, this has been Paul's um, message all the way through the book of Acts. Is he's constantly pointing back to the law and the prophets and saying Jesus must be the Messiah. Not because it's, it's a departure from what the scriptures say, but because it is exactly what the scriptures said. He's the only one that can fulfill that. So I worship God, the God of our fathers, totally in accordance with what is laid down in the law and the prophets. There's an implication here, I think. And the implication is that to not believe in Jesus is to not believe in everything in the Old Testament. So these... these uh, these uh, scribes and Pharisees, these uh, chief priests and elders are rejecting Paul's message. And what Paul is saying, what he's accusing them of essentially is, I am being faithful to what the scriptures have said. If they refuse to worship this way, they are out of line with the scriptures. To reject Jesus is not to, is to, to not accept everything in the Old Testament as well as the New. So the way really isn't a sect, is it? He's painting it as this is not some weird departure. This isn't some new invention. This is totally in line with the history of our nation. This is the fulfillment. This is the, the, the picturing, the flowering of our religion is right here. This is what I'm doing, Felix. I'm not having some new way. I'm not doing something different. And he keeps going. He says, I have a hope in God. Because of all of this stuff from the Old Testament, from the law and the prophets, because of the worship that I have of God through Jesus Christ, I have a hope in God which these men themselves accept. Wait, what? They don't accept Jesus. What do you mean they accept? They accept this hope, that there will be a resurrection, both of the just and the unjust. Do you remember what happened when he was brought before the Sanhedrin and he looked and he said, there's scribes and there's Pharisees, or uh, Sadducees and Pharisees. He said, I better get this out quick because this is going to dissolve into a big fight pretty soon. I'm here because of the resurrection. And then the fight starts. So that's what he's, he keeps going back to the resurrection. That has been his major theme throughout the book of Acts. It's his major theme in his defense. I have a hope in the resurrection. These gentlemen have a hope in the resurrection too. But here, I'm here to explain to you better what the resurrection is. We've got something more to explain it than just this kind of, you know, nebulous idea. So that he says that there is a resurrection of the just and the unjust. Um, when you look at the book of Revelation, which we sang from this morning, I'm kind of glad we touched on that. Um, there is a resurrection when Jesus returns. Jesus comes to earth, and those who have died in Christ rise with him and reign with him. And then at the end of the age, there is a resurrection of everybody, the just and the unjust are raised. That's what he's looking forward to. He's saying that day of judgment, when the just and the unjust are raised, that'll come up again in a little bit. He kind of introduces the thought to us, but he's talking about that general, uh, that, uh, general resurrection in the end. That's his hope. He's looking towards that moment and saying, that's what I'm hoping in. That's what I'm trusting in. So because that is true, because that thing is going to happen, he says, I always take pains to have a clear conscience before both or toward God and man. Why, what does the, general, or the uh, general resurrection, the resurrection of the just and unjust, have to do with Paul having a clear conscience before God and man? 
Why, what's the connection he makes there? Well, I think what Paul is trying to make sure he does is he's been given a commission. He was, he was the apostle to the Gentiles. He was to take the gospel to the nations. And so for him to not preach the gospel would be wrong. And so when, remember in chapter 20, when he uh, speaks to the Ephesian elders on the beach, he says, I am innocent of the blood of all men. I have executed the, the, the task that the Lord has given me. I have faithfully preached the gospel to everybody. I am not guilty of withholding it from anyone. I've, I've freely preached it. I think that's what he's getting at here when he says that he, is, he tries to maintain a clear conscience towards both God and man. Who's the Lord calling him to preach to? I'm, that's who I'm preaching to. And, and so that's his, his message is, I went about preaching the gospel is what he says to the elders in, on the beach in, as in Ephesians as well. So we'll get more of this in a little bit. It's kind of like Paul is just painting this picture here, and then we'll get a chance to unpack it in a little bit. So why did he come then to Jerusalem? Did he come to Jerusalem? He said he came to worship. What brought him to, to Jerusalem itself? Was it, uh, I wanted to start a riot? No, he says, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. Do you remember what happened in the, the epistles we hear about this? Paul took up an offering from all the, the Gentile churches to bring it to Jerusalem, to bring it to Judea, to help those in need in, in uh, Judea. There was a famine at one point, and, and so he's bringing money to help them out. He brought alms to his nation. So is he at odds with Judea, with Jerusalem, with, with um, the nation of Israel? He came to bring them blessings. He, he came to support them and to help them. He came to bring alms and to make offerings. So is, does that sound like what the picture that Tertullian is painting? This guy's trouble. He's, he's just here to stir up trouble. No, I came to be a blessing. So what happens then? Well, they found me purified in the temple without crowd or tumult. They found me purified. What did Tertullian say? He came to desecrate, to profane the temple. He says, no, 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 no. They found me in the temple purified. I had taken an oath. I had washed. I had cut off my hair, whatever the, the, this particular oath looked like. I came in purified. I didn't come in to desecrate the temple. I came to celebrate the temple without crowd or tumult. Did I come in and start churning anything up? Nope. They found me off in a corner praying, and they started a riot. And so he says, but some of the Jews from Asia, they ought to be here. He interrupts himself. He's, he's telling the story, and he goes, these Jews from Asia, you remember from the last uh, previous chapter, it was the Jews from Asia went, hey, that Paul, he's hanging around Gentiles. Take this man away from the earth. He says, these Jews from Asia, you know, they ought to be here, and they ought to be the ones making the accusation because they're the ones, who, and he goes off on this complete tangent, doesn't finish his sentence. Um, doesn't sound like good writing to me. It sounds like truthful writing because I do that sometimes. Start on a sentence and get lost halfway through. So what, what happens is he's saying that the Jews from Asia have done this. This is what's been going on. And he sums up his case. They ought to be here. They're the ones that should be making this. Um, he says, here's what happened. The only reason that I've been arrested, the only reason that I'm currently standing before you right now, Felix, is because I stood before the council and said, in respect to the resurrection of the dead, that I'm on trial before you. That's the only reason I got sent out of Jerusalem because these folks got so mad at me and it, and it caused that problem. That's his case. He essentially denies all three charges. He's not starting a new religion. He's not stirring up trouble for, a nation, for the nation, and he's not there to desecrate the temple. 
There's the case for you, Felix. How should Felix render his verdict at this point? Given the evidence that he's been given, accusations and then Paul unpacking it, should he be able to make a, a, a decision at this point, do you think? It would be nice if there was some evidence or some witnesses or something, but just hearing the arguments, Paul is saying, this is what happened. It seems like Felix should be able to slam the gavel and go, innocent. Try it again next time, you guys, when you got something that you can actually charge him on. But Felix, having a rather accurate way of the way, put them off. So Felix understood he had a more accurate knowledge of the way. He understood Christianity in a, in a better way, a little bit better than apparently the accusers of Paul. He puts them off. He says, you know, we'll wait till the, the tribune shows up and then I'll decide your case. Which, by the way, he doesn't. Uh, apparently the tribune doesn't show up and, and Felix does not decide the case. You see why this guy got fired? <laughs> He can't even settle. Paul is a Roman citizen. He's entitled to a fair trial, and, and Felix can't even do that. So he gives orders that Paul is to be kept in custody. He's not allowed to, to roam free throughout the city, but his friends are free to come and go. So he's, he's kind of like under general house arrest. He's got an ankle bracelet on with GPS tracking. He's not allowed to leave the house, but people are allowed to come and see him. So it's, it's not quite arrest. It's not quite liberty either. It's somewhere in between. So I, you get the impression Felix is just not the best of leaders. So then what it goes on to next, he said, after some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was a Jew, and they sent for Paul to hear him to talk about faith in Christ. Hey, this is great. He, he wants to hear more about Jesus. Isn't that encouraging? But Drusilla is a Jew. Well, Drusilla is a, a daughter of Herod. She married a king of some other place. I couldn't quite figure out where it was. And what happened was Felix and a soothsayer convinced her to leave her husband and marry Felix. So you get the impression that Drusilla is a real fine, upstanding Jew, right? Yeah, not the, the whole thing is, I mean, Luke is very deferentially, doesn't really get into the de details, but from extra biblical stuff, we know this was not a good crowd. Um, but they send and they, they want to hear more about Jesus. That should be a good thing, right? This is great. Yeah, let me, let me talk about Jesus. Paul's favorite thing to do. So what it says next is that Paul reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment. So those are the three topics that he brings up. What I want to do is pick those apart a little bit. What does Paul mean by righteousness here? What does he mean by self-control here? What does he mean by the coming judgment here? Well, in in Acts, we can't say because Luke just gives us a summary. But what's going on during this time for Paul? He's writing epistles. And by the way, the Holy Spirit inspired some of them. And by the way, we have those in the Bible. So if we want to understand what Paul means by righteousness, we can go and look at the rest of his writings on the issue of righteousness. What does Paul mean by righteousness? Does that seem like a fair thing to do, to go look at the rest of what Paul has actually written on this stuff? So when Paul talks about righteousness, how are we righteous? In Romans, he talks about it quite a bit. Actually, Romans and Galatians are kind of like twin epistles. They're, they're saying very similar things. Romans 3.21, but now the righteousness of God has been manifest. Righteousness, this righteousness that's from God, this righteousness of God has been manifest. How? Apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. Prophets and law. Remember what he was talking about? I worship according to that. This is nothing new that I'm doing. The righteousness that I'm talking about is not through the law. The law itself tells you that. 
So that's his first thing that he must be telling Felix about the law. The next one is he says in Romans 10.4, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. How do you become righteous? You become righteous by trusting in Jesus Christ. Righteousness is through faith. It is through trusting in Jesus Christ, and then you are pronounced righteous. Galatians, now it's evident to the one who is justified before God by the law for, or I'm sorry, Galatians 3.11, now it's evident that no one is justified before God by the law for, quote, the righteous shall live by faith. So it's not incidental that he goes to talk to Felix about faith in Jesus Christ, and one of the issues that he talks about, one of the first issues is righteousness. Because we are made righteous by faith. This is the theme of the Protestant Reformation. We are made righteous by God's grace alone, not our works, through faith alone, not our works, in what Christ alone has accomplished, period. That's the theme of the Protestant Reformation. We got it from a good source. We picked it up from the Apostle Paul. So what he's saying is, if he said earlier, I worship God according to the way, the way referring to Jesus Christ, what he's saying is to worship God according to Jesus Christ is to be justified by faith alone. You are righteous by trusting in God. Period. That's what it is. So believing everything in the law and in the prophets means not, I can do this. It means righteousness not through the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. The law tells you that. If you're paying attention to the law, the law will point you in that direction. Okay. Next one, self-control. So here's what's going on with self-control is if you have self-control, then you're righteous, right? I get myself under control, I muscle down my sin, my, my negative impulses, I do that, I've got self-control, and now I'm righteous. He didn't say righteous through self-control, he said righteous and self-control. So what role does self-control have if we're justified by faith? If God has said, if you trust in Jesus, I declare you righteous, then what does self-control have to do with it? Shouldn't we just, you know, go with it? Go for it. We're justified by faith. We don't have to worry about it. Paul anticipated this very question in, in uh, Romans. In Romans chapter 6, he says, Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace might also reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. What shall we say then? Are we to continue to sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who have died to sin still live in it? So the self-control is not before the righteousness. Self-control doesn't generate righteousness. Righteousness is by faith in Jesus Christ. That's how we're declared righteous. But Paul then says, so does that mean we can live any way we want then? We just, you know, go hog wild because we're justified by faith. Yay! I'd heard one time that was one of the accusations from the Reformation, is if you teach that, the people are going to go nuts. So why is it that's not true? Because when we talk about faith, faith is more than just a nod. Yes, I, I like that. Faith is more than just, hmm, that sounds like a good idea. I'll do that. Faith is something that is, is so integral to who we are. If we attach our faith in Jesus Christ, it changes our desires. Faith is saying, I have no hope in anything but Jesus. And so what then happens is we're given a new heart. The Holy Spirit gives us a new heart. To say that I could be justified by faith alone and then live like the devil 
is to misunderstand being justified by faith. That's being justified by a nod or a mm hmm, but not by faith in Jesus Christ. So when we are justified by faith in Jesus Christ, then self-control comes in because our hearts have been tuned in a different direction. Our hearts now would desire to follow God. And we have to wrestle with that, that lingering desire to not do that. We have to have self-control in this. But we can't put self-control in the driver's seat. If we put self-control in the driver's seat and say, well, I muscled that one down, I'm in good shape, we're in bad shape because we're relying on ourselves, not Jesus Christ. So the, the demonstration I want to offer for this is Romans chapter 7. There's some dispute over Romans chapter 7. Is it Paul talking about himself? Is it Paul talking about himself before he was converted? Is it Paul talking in generalities about an unbeliever in general? Or is it his actual Christian experience? I believe that it's Paul talking about his current experience because some of the things that he says, he says, I do not do what I want to do. He wants to do what is right before God. The sinner wants to do whatever pleases him in, in the moment. Paul is saying, I know what I should do. I desire to do that thing. That's what I want to do. So he says, I do not do what I want to do, but the very thing I hate, that I do. He hates it. The picture from the New Testament is not the sinner hates his sin. The sinner delights in his sin. That's a fake substitute for God. So what Paul is saying is, here I am, born again, a new heart, a new desire, and I'm waging war against the flesh. I need self-control. If self-control is what generates righteousness, then these are not saying two different things. But if righteousness then breeds self-control, where you say, I am now declared righteous, I don't want to be this way anymore. By God's help, he's inclined my heart in a different direction. By his help, he's given me his word to encourage me. By his help, he's given me the church to demonstrate what I should be doing. Now my heart wants to go in this way, and sometimes it doesn't. So I need self-control to live in accordance with the way that he has made me to be. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. That troubles him. That worries him. Why do I keep going back to that? I need self-control. I, I need to stop doing those things. I need to remind myself, yes, you know, the sin of gossip is a blast when I do it, but it really doesn't accomplish much. It doesn't last. It doesn't help me feel better. As a matter of fact, afterwards, I feel pretty unky. This isn't good. And, and he needs self-control. He needs to remind himself of whatever that is, pride, arrogance, lust, whatever it is, he needs to remind himself, that's what I don't want to do. That's where self-control comes in. But self-control is second. It's never first. It's never, I'm going to get my sins lined up and worked out and all sorted and everything, and then, bam, I'm good. That's my righteousness. That's opposite of what Paul is saying. So there's self-control, there's righteousness, and then finally, he talks about the coming judgment. There's going to be a judgment that, that comes. So Paul has is, is quite often, he's, he's spoken about the resurrection. He's directly mentioned the resurrection in the, of the just and the unjust here. So when we face the judgment and the resurrection in that day, how will we stand? So here's, here's the thing is Paul is saying there's righteousness through faith alone. There is self-control. And then there's a day coming when God will judge us. So how do you stand on that day 
when, when Jesus shows up and he, ha- he raises everybody and he says, now appear before my judgment seat. What will you do when you're standing there? What will be your answer to the charges? If we have a distorted view of our righteousness, if we think that we are uh, uh, justified by a nod that will escape by nodding at Jesus and not by hope in Jesus, then uh, not by hope in Jesus that reorders our life, then we won't stand on that day. Because God's going to look at, it says very clearly in the book of Revelation, he's going to judge our works. He's going to open a book, and in that book are our works. So if the, the, the thought is, well, I'll just nod at Jesus, I'll get my excuse, and then I'll just won't worry about the rest of my life and go on, the book stands there and says, now what about this? But what about people who have put their hope in Jesus? What about people who say, I'm counting on nothing else? When they appear before the judgment seat and God says, what about this? What about this, these things you've done? Then the believer, the one who's justified, the one who's righteous says, guilty, did it all. I, I've done all of that. But my only hope is that Jesus was sufficient. That's what faith in Jesus is, is to say, I, Lord, I struggled against this stuff. And yeah, I stumbled. And, and I never executed it perfectly, but I'm not counting on that performance to make me right with you. Lord, I'm looking at you and saying, because of Jesus, that's where my righteousness is. Would you accept me because of that? A useless hope in our own merits, in our own merits based on our own wobbly self-control, or a love for a savior, savior so, who, ah, I wrote this wonderful sentence and I can't even get it out. Let me try it again. By a useless hope in the merits of our own wobbly self-control or by a love for our Savior who is so alive that you war against those things that displease him, which one of those would you rather stand before the throne and say, this is what I did? Lord, I, I tried. I really warred against those things. I didn't make it very well, but I'm not counting on that. I, I know you're aware of that. I'm not counting on that. Lord, I'm counting on my Savior, Jesus Christ. So listen to Paul's hope. This is from Philippians. Um, This is his hope, and I think it's where he ties all of these together. Righteousness, self-control, and the resurrection. Philippians 3, 8 through 11. I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by all means possible, I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Do you hear? He put, he put it all together. The righteousness I have is my hope, my faith in Jesus Christ. I struggle. I, I, I go through all of these things. I share his sufferings. I go through all those difficulties. I exercise this self-control. Why? because I want to attain to the resurrection, not based on my struggle, but based on my Savior. So this is, this is the message that he's standing there preaching to, to Felix and Priscilla, or Drusilla, rather, is righteousness, self-control, and the, and the judgment that is to come. Now, what it says is, after that, that Felix was, um, the uh, ESV says, alarmed. Folks, I want to tell you that is way too weak. The word there is phobos, fear. You know where we get phobias? It's from that Greek word. It's not alarm. 
It is, Felix heard this and was terrified. This scared the daylights out of him. Because he knew the judgment was coming, he didn't argue that. But he wasn't ready to put his trust in Jesus. He wasn't interested in it. And he certainly, from what we can tell from the historical record, was not interested in self-control. That was one of his, his things that he just wasn't too interested in. He wasn't alarmed. He was terrified by this because he knew it was true. And he just didn't want that kind of life. He didn't want to head in that direction. Next verse. At the same time, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul. <laughs> you think he was right to be terrified? <laughs> I think he was on good grounds. This is another thing that we get from the extra-biblical texts, from the historical documents. This is what Felix was known for, is he was a money grabber. He would take bribes. And so he keeps calling Paul in, even though Paul is scaring the daylights out of him, saying, you know, maybe this time he'll kick some bucks my way, and then I can release him. He's just a scumbag. He just is. And so what it says is that he kept him basically two years in prison for no reason. He could have released him. He could have said, yep, you're pardoned. He'd heard enough of him. But he kept him in prison for two years because he was waiting for some cash. It's terrible. And so then what happens is he gets replaced um, by, um, by Festus. And again, we have historical documents. This is exactly what happened. Felix was fired because there were too many problems in Judea under his watch. This is around 60 AD or so. It's not too long until the, the uh, insurrection happens and Rome levels the temple. It's coming. That's how close we are to that event. So the Jews are getting uppity. Felix hasn't dealt with it. He's just leaving him rot. But he says he wanted to do a favor for the Jews. A favor for the Jews. I'll keep, you, I'll keep a Roman citizen unjustly locked up in prison just so you Jews are happy. I can't imagine what the man's thinking. Can you see why he might need a dose of self-control here? He is just flying off the handle. So this is where Paul is left. He's left sitting in a prison in Caesarea. Now, what's going on? Well, God is still doing what he said. Remember the day before he was sent out of Jerusalem, Jesus came to him and said, don't be afraid. You're going to go to Rome and testify just like you did in Jerusalem. And that very next day, he's out of Jerusalem. So we felt like, oh, great, he's on the road. Now we hit this and we're stuck for two years. God is moving him at his own pace in his own way toward his appointment in Rome. He will get there at the right moment. He needed to be out of Jerusalem Apparently, who knows why, he needed to stop in Caesarea for two years. Maybe there was something going on in Rome that would interfere or delay his case. Who knows? We don't have a clue. But what we're seeing is God is now continuing to move his servant where he's supposed to be. And what message is he carrying with him towards Rome? Is he carrying a message of, boy, if you just became a Jew, life would be much better? He's, taught, he's carrying the message of righteousness in Christ through faith. He's, he's carrying a message of a judgment's coming, and you can stand in that day of judgment, but not based on your own works. That's the message that he's carrying to Rome. And so as he's in chains, it just keeps getting stronger and stronger and stronger for him. He is pushed once again to tell the story over and over and over again. And it just becomes more cemented in his person and who he is and what he's got to say. So when he gets to Rome, I can't wait to hear what he has to say. Um, Spoiler alert, we won't find out. Uh, the book ends before he gets to, before Caesar. Wouldn't it have been great to hear that message, though? Wouldn't it be great to hear him say what he's got to say to Caesar? 
you can kind of thread it together because he's given us enough evidence in the New Testament. You can get what he's talking about. He doesn't change his message. He's got a pretty simple, straightforward message every time. This is how it looks. So this is Paul's message. This is Paul's defense. Um, is he innocent? I, um, if I was the judge, I'd bang the gavel and dismiss the case. He's innocent. Um, but God put the right man in the right place at the right time to make sure that Paul gets to Rome, and we won't get a verdict. But what we will get next time is we'll meet um, uh, Festus and Agrippa and some more stuff. He'll go through this trial one more time. We'll get to hear his story again. And maybe that can cement in our hearts this, the hope that he wants us to have, which is righteousness. Righteousness in Christ. Righteousness through faith. And not a faith that doesn't really do much, but a faith that generates self-control, that, that causes you to want a war against that inward bent towards sin so that in the day of judgment we can stand. Let's pray. Lord, we're grateful um, because we can do nothing but be grateful for the righteousness that you have placed on us, that we could stand before the judgment seat and say, because of Jesus, we are righteous before you because of what he's done on our behalf. And Lord, we're grateful for that. So we don't have to fear that day of judgment. We don't have to worry about being found guilty of what we've actually done. Jesus has borne our sins. And Lord, I just pray that that would stir our hearts to worship every Sunday over and over again. And Lord, at the same time, we're grateful for self-control. We're grateful that you, Holy Spirit, have put that into us to say, no, you don't want to go that way. And Lord, we look forward to that day of the, the resurrection of the dead, when our bodies will be made new, when sin, death, and hell will be put away, when we will worship you in the way that you meant us to worship. With all of our hearts, with all of our minds, with all of our soul, and Lord, we, we, we long for that day to come. Would you please bring it soon? We ask in Christ's name. Amen.